Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hi, and welcome to the AAP Practice Life Podcast. I'm Mike Pownall, and today we have a very special subject. We're going to be talking about vet-fairy relationships. I'm joined by three other veterinarians, and we're going to talk about what we as veterinarians can do to encourage farrier-vet relationships. And when you hear the introductions, we've got a great team here today. So I'm going to start off with Andrea Dubay. If Andrea, if you can sort of introduce yourself, let everybody know about you. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I am Andrea Dubay. I'm a 2007 grad from the Atlantic Veterinary College in PEI, Canada. I started out, did my internship in New York at New England Equine Practice, and then eventually found my way to Mickey Ponnell in Ontario, Canada. And so what kind of practice do you do? What do you work on? Equine only and mostly sport horses, some repro and a couple of backyard horses, but equine only. Excellent. And we'll get into your interest in podiatry in a little bit. So next, we're joined by Dr. Josh Zacharias of Greeley, Colorado. Welcome, Josh. Let's know a little bit about you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a 2003 graduate of Iowa State University here in the U.S. Went ahead and, and was in farrier school. Uh, went to Kentucky Horseshoe School while I was in vet school. Then I went on and did an internship and a surgery residency at Purdue. Uh, became boarded in surgery with ACVS. Found my way to Greeley here. Been here almost 10 years now. Uh, and I think 2013 or so, became boarded in sports medicine and, and rehabilitation. And since then, we've been doing a lot of rehab. And, and of course, we do a lot of sports medicine. My caseload is mostly Western performance horses, um, but we do have some sport and some racehorse caseload as well. Excellent. And last but certainly not least, Dr. B.B. Freer of Tryon, North Carolina. Welcome, B.B. Thank you. I'm a 1988 grad of North Carolina State University. I've been in large practices, solo practice, recently joined my solo practice with another solo practitioner and have an associate. And we're in Tryon, North Carolina. I'm definitely a jack of all trades, master of none. I do a lot of repros, some sport horse pre-purchases, lamenesses, teeth. Our newly formed practice has got a lot of promise and potential. I'm excited about that. Throughout my entire career, I've had a passion for veterinary farrier relationships. My first mentor had been a farrier before he went to veterinary school. So this is a something I really believe is very important in our profession. Absolutely. And I just for the context to give some background on myself, people know me more often for business management. But before I was a vet, I was a farrier for seven years. And being six foot four, I realized that was not going to be a pain-free existence. So that's when I went to vet school and I continued chewing for a number of years after I graduated, working a lot on orthopedics, lameness, what have you. But my body just sort of gave out on that. So, you know, really the podiatry aspect of vet medicine was something that still excites me. So let's move on and let's talk about Andrea. I mean, how did you get involved in podiatry and what sparked your interest? I think I've always had a bit of an innate interest in it. I think when I cut my teeth in New York, I worked at a practice that worked well with farriers and we had a bunch of really good farriers in the area who were happy to 
help and happy to collaborate and teach and learn with new vets. So that was always really positive. As it kind of moved along, I think the next kind of big jump and change is when I went to an ICELP in BC a couple of years ago, and I sat through the ICELP and they had offered a one-day podiatry, farriery, vet farrier seminar. And I sat through that alongside of a farrier friend and, and realized just how much I didn't know and maybe how outdated some of the information I'd been using for what I thought was useful and basically realized that, that I really needed to up my game if I was serious about wanting to be involved with sport horses. And so I think that was the next big thing. And then kind of coming home from that, I met up with some of my farrier friends and we kind of decided that we could all learn a lot from each other and do better that way. And so we came up with the idea of, of some organized vet farrier playtime, essentially, to help us all grow, me learning from them and them learning from us. And it's turned into a, a broader vets and farriers learning together kind of situation. And we're definitely going to dig in deeper because I think what you're doing with Foot for Thought is the group that you've put together, I think is really uh, needed in the industry. And I know, uh, Bibi, you've done something very similar. I think you've had monthly get together with farriers in your area. How, how did you start doing that? Yeah, uh, I had sedated some donkeys for one of my farrier friends at Tram, and we were under the shade tree just chatting after that. And he told me that a colleague about three hours away, his name is Jim Meeker, was having monthly meetings at his practice. And he had asked some veterinarians in our area to go with him to Dr. Meeker's meetings, and none of them had stepped up to the plate. So I said, well, I'll go. It sounds like fun. So uh, he and I and two other farriers drove down to Dr. Meeker's, went to his meeting and on our way home said, well, we can do this ourselves. And so we started, that was 2010, March of 2010. And we started our own monthly meetings then. And we're still going strong. We've made our own variation of Dr. Meeker's meetings. And we call our, our group Farrier Jam Sessions because I play the banjo. And just like you can play old Joe Clark several different ways, you can also shorten breakover or get whatever concept you're trying to get done. You can do it more than one way, depending on what farrier is going to shoe the horse going forward. That's an amazing analogy. I never thought of it that way, but that's actually quite <laughs> accurate. Really accurate. <laughs> And, and Josh, yourself, you said you were you were going to farrier school while you were in vet school. So what prompted your interest in podiatry? Yeah, well, when I went into vet school, I kind of thought I'd go on the cow side of things and, and uh, got into uh, my freshman year and really took an interest in the equine side, spent a lot of time down in the clinics. And there was a resident farrier there, journeyman farrier at Iowa State by the name of Dan White. And, and I asked him what what he sees as students come through, what makes, you know, an equine veterinarian better. And, and he said, we'll go to shoeing school. And so I took that advice to heart and, and went to school that he had taught at for, I believe, three or four years. And then I come back and, and spent the rest of my veterinary school career, a lot of my free time down in the in the clinics with him and the shoeing room and, and you know, building shoes. And, and uh, we even did some competition stuff and really learned a lot in the veterinary teaching hospital setting. And that's helped me a long ways, you know, going uh, going forward. You know, it's one of those things where I think to be an equine veterinarian, it really helps to have that, that knowledge of the foot and, and anywhere from being able to 
put something on right now instead of trying to get a farrier in there or to more importantly probably to advise and, and kind of guide the farrier that's been working on that horse and so that's kind of what sparked my interest in is just to be a better equine veterinarian and it's brought me a long way. Do you still shoe? I do. Yeah, we shoe. Uh, the practice I'm in right now has, there's three of us veterinarians out of the four plus an intern. So five veterinarian practice, two of the owners and myself are all farriers and we actively do some shoeing. And, you know, it's hard to balance veterinary cases with the plain shoeing cases. So we try to limit, you know, the number of appointments a day to how many we're shoeing. Uh, you just can't make as much income for the practice. I suppose you could, but it's hard to charge enough to pay for your time versus being in the surgery room or doing a lameness in our case. So we work a lot more with the farriers in the area and, and then just do what we can on our own, of course. So you've opened up you know, somewhere where I wanted to go in our discussion, and that is talking about your approach to working with farriers. And I, and I think you know, there's the approach of showing the respect for each other, not stepping on each other's toes. But when you have two professionals working on a horse, I'd be really interested in how people charge for that. So let's go back to you, Andrea, and ask, I mean, how do you work with farriers in, in the lame cases that you see? Are we talking specifically what I do to get to the point that we're working together? Are we talking what we do when we're at the appointment, quote unquote? It could be either way. I just, this is wide open. The question, you know, really, I just, when you have a client who says my horse is lame and there's a foot issue and you, whether it's a, a balance, a quarter crack, laminitis, I mean, how do you extend the open hand so that you can work well with the farrier? Generally speaking, most of my clients are pretty understanding of the fact that I prefer to work with the farrier. So we have a pretty open dialogue, but if it's, I've never worked with somebody and I show up and there's a foot issue, Either we're going to radiograph the horse that day and then I'm going to call the farrier with radiographs or I'm going to call the farrier and say, hey, you know, we've got a problem today. It's blocking here. I think it might be this. Do you remember anything about that shoeing or have you had any challenges? And, you know, is there a way that we can figure out maybe between you and I what's going on here? I prefer, especially if I don't know them or if I haven't met them, to meet them on the farm with the horse because I think sometimes... I probably don't have as well-trained an eye as Josh for sure or BB. So I think sometimes when we're looking at the horse, I'm learning things as well. And maybe I'm not appreciating challenges that they are encountering on a four or five week basis in terms of that horse and that farm and that situation. So I like to meet them and do the radiographs with them if I can, certainly on the first go around so we can interpret it together and come up with a solution together. But I think when I do that, it's pretty disarming and they're pretty happy to meet me. And once they realize that nobody's getting thrown under the bus and we're just looking for a solution together, I think it goes pretty well. So that's kind of what I tend to try to do. You know, on the on the horses that I work regularly with the farriers, there's just a lot of radiographs and phone calls and a lot of discussions. And they go both ways. If the guys notice something different or ladies, because there's quite a few female farriers where we are. If they notice something different about the way a foot is growing recently that it hadn't been doing, or they find something, you know, the horse is hard to get under and he hadn't been, they will call me also and be, you know, a little heads up-ish in terms of saying, hey, have you noticed anything about this horse? Has anything changed because it's been more difficult or this is happening lately? So once I think the conversation opens, it becomes really easy and it's an open dialogue at that point. And it's more of a team approach and the trainer's usually involved and everybody's generally pretty good. We don't get much resistance with the group we have. You really have the approach of humility and there to learn from the farrier as part of a team. 
I think it's both ways. I'm there to learn what they can teach me in terms of the mechanics and what are the challenges about this foot, because I don't always appreciate all of the mechanical changes or, or the problems with a foot, which might mean that we can't put on the shoe I have in my head. So I try to approach it from a, this is the problem of, I think we've identified, you know, what are the shoeing options that you think could work and what are the options within your toolbox that you're comfortable with trying to apply? Because it's all well and good for me to ask them to put on a big fancy shoe, but if they're not comfortable doing that, then we're not going to have a good outcome. Great. And, and BB, what is your approach? Because obviously you've really developed a great relationship with farriers. So how do you go in and introduce yourself to a new farrier or involve a farrier into a case that you're working on? I really try my best. I know it's not always possible, but I try my best to establish a relationship with the farriers before we have an issue with the horse. And that's one of the reasons why we have our monthly meetings is to so that we get to know each other before there's an issue. That's not always possible, I know. So if I find a horse with a lameness issue and I've localized it to the foot, then I explain to the owner that they're going to get more bang for their buck if the farrier and I are out on the farm together to do the radiographs. And I do that at all possible. And I, I never touch a horse's foot without calling the farrier as soon as I get back in the truck. So they don't get back on the farm and get blindsided with, well, BB was here and said that the horse is lame, it's in the foot, and they never heard anything. They, they hear from me the minute I get in the truck. And then, I, like I said, I try to take the radiographs with the farrier with me so we can look at the radiographs and then adjust the trim or the shoe if we feel like it's appropriate and discuss the biomechanics of the foot. And, and then if they want a post radiograph after they've placed the shoe, I can do it for them right then. Great. And how about yourself, Josh? You know, we kind of have, a, I think, similar approach to all of you guys. I guess where we're a little different is that there's a whole bunch of farriers around. I mean, we have a, a slew of them with ranging with different levels of talent or, or comfort. You know, some of the farriers around here are just comfortable doing normal perimeter fit shoeing. And, and beyond that, they get a little nervous. And so some of those we try to talk through and, and guide them if they're comfortable with it. And others, you know, they're willing to pass it on to somebody kind of up the chain, so to speak. So uh, I always ask, you know, when we're doing a lameness, I always, almost always ask, especially if it's with the foot, at least just who their farrier is, is a cat, if I don't know the horse uh, and the, you know, the farrier's work, try to get an idea of what farriers are capable of and, and the quality of shoeing that they're doing so that I don't ever try to throw anybody under the bus by any means. And so I usually ask the clients and the owners themselves if, they're comfortable with or if their farrier would be comfortable with just as kind of a casual dialogue with you know whatever type of shoe we're trying to do and, and a lot of owners aren't going to know that but some of the owners and the trainers are going to have an idea of oh yeah I think they would if, if it's a farrier that's maybe not one of the more common ones around so we do try to work as a team uh, usually like BB said, always call the farrier uh, before we get too involved. I will pull shoes and, and do some trimming if we're looking for an abscess or maybe just cleaning it up for radiographs. We'll pull shoes. That's pretty standard. You know, I, I won't necessarily tack a shoe back on without talking to the uh, current farrier. And, and then usually if we're trying to change or do some sort of, I don't necessarily like the term prescription, but trying to get a principle across as far as changing what we're doing with the foot, then of course we'll talk to the, the current farrier or if they want us to get started. Some some farriers just want us to do it one time and then they can kind of go from there. Or we do have, a, you know, any of the farriers in our area can come in and use our shoe and room and we can be there to take radiographs to date, whatever we block, you know, 
whatever we need to do. We're pretty open-minded and we can offer, you know, as much as doing it ourselves to start with, all the way to just kind of advising and coaching some of the farrier, the, the shoers in the area to, to get something done. I think Andrea said, you know, don't ever try to say that we need to put, you know, X type of shoe on, you know, whatever shoe it's to get that type of principle, whether it's breakover reduction or, you know, orthotic support or something along those lines. The delicate question, and this is something I was challenged with when I was practicing, is you have a farrier and they just don't have the skill set to do what needs to be done. And we all know them. We go into a barn and we'll see a horse being shot and we, we know the styles and it's unfortunate. I mean, that's a delicate dance. I mean, how do you bring it up when somebody says, oh, my favorite farrier, he'll come and meet you. And you're thinking this person just can't do it. How do you handle that, Bibi? Um, usually I try to ask the farrier if they're willing to bring the horse to one of our meetings. And most of them will say yes. We just recently had a guy that declined, but I would say 99% of the time they say yes. And then when they bring the horse to our Monday night meeting, then some of the more skilled farriers can show them how to to grind into the shoe what we're trying or, you know, modify a keg shoe rather than trying to forge a shoe. We have a very collegial group here where we are more talented farriers are really willing to help the guys that aren't as skilled. So I see that a lot on the farms where, you know, one of the CFs or CJFs will help another guy on the farm until we get those shoes to a point where the original farrier can shoe it going forward. And just to clarify, when we say CF and CJF, it's American Farrier Association for uh, certification, certified farrier or certified journeyman farrier. That's the next level. Andrea, how about yourself? I mean, I know in our area, when we're in the same practice, that there are a few farriers in our area that don't play well in the sandbox or or don't have the skill set to to do some of the more advanced shoeing. So how do you deal with that? I am... um pretty lucky in the specific set of clients that I work with, that I have quite a few consistent farriers who will play nicely or come to the table or who are willing. And and with those guys, or even the less experienced younger guys, because we've met most of them, if I say, you know, if there's a tricky situation, I can pretty easily say to those guys, you know, is this something you're comfortable with? Or, or do you feel like it's over your head. And and they'll say to me, you know what, I don't think I can do that. And in that situation where they're open enough to say, I don't think I can, or I'm not sure I'm getting it, or I've tried and it's not working. I think a nice solution, and I've never had it fail on me yet, quote unquote, is I will then say to them, well, is there somebody you really like who you think could help? You know, is there somebody else who we could bring in? And they will think of somebody. And if that person is able to then come to the appointment and the three of us can work on it together. You know, I've never had that guy who comes to help ever throw the other guy under the bus. He's always helped get the shoe or the foot going in the right direction. He might say, you know, I'll come every second time with you and help, or you know what, now you know you've got it. And so I think that's a really, really nice approach. And I think it works well a lot of the time. I still don't know the best answer in terms of what you do when there's somebody who's just not seeming to get it or being able to or having that skill set. But when I get into a situation where I think I have one of those people on my hands, what I try to do best is meet them. And if they won't, if they refuse to meet me, because that still happens, that they absolutely will not meet me, then 
I try to say these are the really, really important points and this is what I feel is really needing to be addressed and how would you like to do it? I still try and leave the their approach to them and then I might go see it three days later and if it's really not working, I'll call them back rather than throwing them under the bus to the clients. I'll call them back and be like, okay, but the horse isn't any better and I've got a pulse or you know, I'll tell them my findings and be quite upfront and honest with what I think is working and what is not working. And if we go a couple of rounds at that, usually it shifts the tone and they become more comfortable because they don't think I'm going to throw them under the bus to the client. And sometimes the client gets fed up and says, you know, that's it. But I try hard. I lost one farrier, a large account once, and I aspire not to do that. So I try pretty hard not to take a meal out of anybody's life. How about yourself, Josh? How do you handle those situations? Yeah, I agree. Those can be tough. Um, I mean, I, I try to, you know, obviously always keep the farrier involved and, and make them be part of the decision process. You know, obviously we're the ones that are going to tell what we need to do, but they can put the input on uh, as far as principles, but they can give us the uh, input on, you know, a different way to do it. And, and we've got quite a few very good farriers around that can do that, but there is a handful that are just set in their ways. You can, a lot of times you can see these, you know, guess who the farrier is for horses just based off the tendencies that they have, whether it's a little bit of long toe, or maybe they're not very good on medial lateral balance. And so, you know, depending on what the injury is or what the reason is that we're, we're trying to address, sometimes it's just best to say, I don't know that your farrier is able to do that. I, I don't think it's any help to the client to try to have a farrier work for three months on a horse and, and still end up in the same boat. But at the same time, I agree with Andrea in that we don't want to lose a whole barn for a barrier, you know, that can be quite a bit of an economic impact on them. Uh, so I, I would you know, typically try to keep the original farrier involved if they're able. Uh, I, I'm always willing if they're not comfortable or they answer that question of, can you do this? And they say, well, I think I can. I always offer or I try to always offer that they are welcome to, to meet us in the clinic and we can either do it together, whether that's me doing it with them watching or typically I'm going to have them do it, you know, almost like we're in chewing school and, you know, kind of show them how I'd like it done for some of the more you know basic uh, traditional level of barriers. There are some barriers in the area that are a lot more talented than even myself. I'm not trying to sound conceited. I just, that's all I work on is the problem horses. And so some of these guys that are just shoe and sound horses, sometimes they don't like to, you know, maybe set the shoe back behind the toe or, or, or they don't like to, to go away from that perimeter fit. And so they've been trained, their eyes been trained that that looks wrong. And you know, there are some that I've just found that I you cannot work with. And it ultimately ends up being the client's decision whether or not they want to have somebody else do that. You know, maybe it's just the front feet of that horse uh, or it's just that horse out of the barn. Um, but I, I sure try not to have them lose the barn. If they're doing a good job, great. If they're not, then I'll talk to the farrier away from the client and just say, look, you're getting a lot of these horses out of balance or, or maybe we're getting some you know, shoved up quarters or something along those lines. And so it can be difficult. You know, you got a lot of egos, I think, farriers and, and veterinarians both. They're known for some of some of them can have quite the ego and get their feelings hurt uh, because their work is there to be picked apart. And that's the idea is that you try not to do that. Or, or if you are, just keep it in your mind and, and then try to think about how do I make this sound the most politically correct? How do I make this sound, you know, to where I'm not throwing somebody under the bus, but 
you know, just trying to help them get better. And sometimes there's guys out there that have a better solution than, than what we're thinking. And so you got to stay open-minded but on both sides. That reminds me, I remember working with one of the farriers in our area. And this guy's an exceptional farrier. He's, you know, on the competition, but also on the high-level show horse. And he was one of the ones when I first met him where, you know, the classic arrogant, great ego and, you know, very standoffish. I just don't know why he's like this. And over time, we finally opened up the doors and it really taught me a lesson because it wasn't like this guy came this way. Finally, the light bulb moment for me when he asked me about another vet in the area and he started talking about certain vets in the area and how they just have thrown him under the bus so many times that he just has developed this wariness of working with veterinarians and over time it was just proving that that's not what we're all about and we have since turned it into a fantastic relationship where we do collaborate a lot so i think trying to find out like what is the reason why they're like this and and get beyond that you know a question and a lot of us we've been talking about going to an appointment meeting the farrier they're working how do you charge for that? Because boy, this can get expensive for the client. You know, you've gone there, you've done x-rays, you've blocked a foot, you've diagnosed something and then, okay, we're going to bring the farrier in and then you're going to come back in again. So baby, how do you charge for that? Well, that's another reason why, yes, I've done the block without the farrier, but that's another reason why I try my best to schedule the radiographs with the farrier there. So yes, it's another farm call for the owner. I do charge a farrier consultation fee. I probably am not making tons of money when I'm doing this, but I mean, I charge a farrier consult fee and the, and I try to do the radiographs while he or she is there. And I would say that you're right, that it is expensive for the owner. And we're probably, it's probably not one of my most profitable farm calls either. How about yourself, Josh? How do you uh, handle those? How do you charge for those calls? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I I look at it a little bit different and, and I probably could get, you know, picked on a little bit by saying that I don't charge a consult fee, whether it's, you know, even looking at just looking at radiographs, but shoeing, especially uh, as far as just, you know, guiding a farrier or, or, you know, doing prescriptions or anything like that. So my, I guess, take on it is that the farriers are seeing a lot of horses, a lot more horses by the numbers. And so if I can get a farrier to uh, have a good relationship with our clinic, then that's going to turn back into more cases for us. And so I, I usually, I'll charge for an appointment time uh, as well as, you know, of course, any work. But as far as an actual consult fee, we don't charge for that. You know, we may charge for an exam if, if it's, you know, a horse that we haven't seen for, you know, a couple of weeks or something when the farrier shows up or when we meet the farrier. But they would get a trip charge and, and of course, any sedation or blocks and radiographs. Uh, I usually charge by the view for radiographs. So if it's a pre and a post trim, I may only charge one view for that foot. Uh, you know, obviously if we're taking a, quite a few more, we may, may charge, you know, multiple ones for that foot. But if I'm just taking a lateral film and an AP, that foot for the day may only get two films charged to it. Sometimes it's a little bit more than that. But I try to, you know, not make it look like the client's paying for uh, me to, to talk to their farrier because I think some of these farriers then will not uh, want to put that extra cost on a client. And so that's probably, I can see the other side of that where, you know, you're not getting paid for your time, but I think it comes back to you in the end. 
Just want to shift to what Andrea and Bibi are doing with your regular uh, farrier and, and vet events and maybe give some ideas or suggestions to other people who want to maybe start to put on an event like this. What works and how do you attract farriers and vets to these events? So Andrea, maybe you can talk about what you do with Foot for Thought. Maybe even Josh can fill in on on some feedback on our event because he's been there to uh, to lead on one of them. But we start out, there are five farriers and myself. I approach them initially. Basically, there are different ages and stages in barrier locally, but I reached out to them all individually initially because I work well with all of them. At first, I didn't think they'd actually work well together, but as it turns out, they each bring something kind of very different to the game. So I found them and, and I approached it. I, you know, I met them at a pub and bought them drinks and, and approached them and basically said, you know, guys, I'd like to put something together where we kind of have an organized vet carrier playtime because I feel like I need to learn. And I feel like you guys have a lot of tools to help me learn. And I would like to improve my knowledge base on that. And they jumped on it like white on rice. I don't know you know, if it would be the same everywhere, I don't know, it would be the same with the same farriers. You know, the idea of me offering my anatomy, lameness, what have you, knowledge, they were really, really interested in getting to spend time and just looking and playing with ideas and theories. And so they kind of jumped on it. So we started out, we advertised it through the practice and at the local farrier supply and kind of, you know, word of mouth. And we set it up so that it was for vets and farriers and have eventually opened it up to like technicians and massage therapy folk are welcome to come. We have a couple of equine massage therapists in the area that try to attend. And we by far have a majority of farriers showing up. The first event, we probably had 30. The second event, we probably had 40. The third event... Geez, we must have had almost 60 at the third event. And we've kind of gone on and and done pretty stable between 40 and 60 people show up at an event. What's really fun about the event, we kind of approach it from a, it's a safe space situation. Like there's no shame talking. There's no, and I stand up at the beginning of every one and say, you know, here are the rules, guys. But we're standing there from a practitioner standpoint and we're sharing experience. Nobody is there to force you to believe something that you don't feel comfortable with. It, the idea and the principle behind the clinic is to share tools in our toolbox and share our experience with each other. And I think when we do that, we can learn a lot. And with that approach, it's really gone super well. And I've made a ton of friends and actually been given a lot of cool opportunities to do different things in different places, just because that's the approach we take to it. And I think that's why it's successful. We definitely are more successful at getting farriers out than we are getting vets out. We try to get the vets to play in the area as well. It's, I think, a little disadvantage because we are a very large practice here. So we can get there, but it's harder to get some of the smaller practices. I think they're busier. I think it's harder to get away for an afternoon. But 
we also pull in vets from outside practices and have them participate or have them lead. And I think that's really important. You know, it's not just always me and it hasn't been me yet this season, actually. And we will pull in a medicine specialist if we're doing a topic that's pertinent to medicine. We will pull in lameness vets from other practices in other areas and have them lead for the day and we'll support them, but they'll lead and then we'll set them with a team of farriers who's particularly good or have have some cool ideas on how to approach a certain topic. And we choose a problem and we base every clinic on a problem. And so it's, it's bite-sized, it's three hours, there's a barbecue after every time and it's intended to be focused so it's you know everybody can walk away at the end of the day with a piece of information that they could use on monday josh do you have any comments because you were at the most recent one about a month and a half ago so what were your thoughts on how the vets and the farriers in the areas interacted what what made that event successful other of course you were there so why wouldn't everybody show up but what made that event successful Man, I, I think uh, Andrea's hit it right on the head. It's an area where it's a free space. Uh, I think having, you know, all the farriers show up and some of the vets show up and, and just, you know, have kind of a just, you know, casual conversation about some problems, you know, kind of can learn and where people feel okay to ask a question, you know, and not feel, you know, like they're maybe don't quite have a concept and, and they're free to free to just ask or, you know, why wouldn't this work or how do you do this? And, and, uh, you know, those, those types of environments and those casual conversations, people learn a lot more at that, than at those types of events than at any, you know, lecture type of meeting. You know, we always joke going to a convention that sometimes it's what you do talking at the bar afterwards or at the trade show in between meetings that, you know, it's learn some tricks. And I think that that type of event is, is that for those farriers. It's time to kind of relax and, and catch up and learn new techniques possibly or, or see what everybody else is doing. And it's, it's a non-competitive environment. And I think that's where it really, that's probably the basis of why they're successful is because in general, the farriers are not they see each other as competitors, you know, from day to day. And then when they go there, it's, it's maybe not that case. It's more of a team environment. We're all on the same team. And, and I think that can really drive some uh, cool conversations for them. So we used to do something similar and uh, it kind of got to where, you know, a couple of farriers would jump forward and, and take over. And, and that got to be where a lot of people would lose interest. And we just kind of let that slide and, and uh, it's slid away a couple, you know, over the last couple couple of years. And after attending that one up, up there, I, I think that's, you know, we're going to try to bring that back down here, hopefully. So it, uh, it is a neat environment to have. Excellent. And, and Davey, finally yourself, because I mean, you've been doing yours for nine years now. What What's the secret to your success? Our group is, it's a little less structured. We meet uh, the first Monday of every month and we strive to have two horses to evaluate and radiograph and shoe together each month. Some some months we only have one horse. There have been very few months where we skipped a month because we didn't have a horse. And then during the summer when it's light later, we actually have had some months where we do three. We get together and we, we watch the horse go. If it's, if it's sound enough, then we'll put it in the round pen and work it. We'll jog it and flex it. Occasionally we will block it, but we uh, limit the nerve blocking to just is it in the foot or not in the foot. So we don't do anything above an abaxial sesamoid block. The farrier sight down the limb, uh, we watch it walk up and down the aisleway. And then we radiograph both horses, put both horses in the stall. 
look at the radiographs and then we have a grease board and we discuss, number one, the concepts that we're trying to accomplish. Are we trying to move the center of pressure or shorten the breakover or, you know, what are we trying to accomplish and then what are the ways that we can do it? And then we vote on how we want to shoe the horse and the farrier that brought the horse and is going to shoe it going forward sort of has the last word. Then the guys trim for a few years after the guys would trim, they would change their mind and then the whole shoeing thing would change. So now we've made a new rule that if you trim and decide to change your mind from the vote that we are going to reconvene and discuss the horse's shoeing schedule again. Uh, Then they shoe the horse and then I take at least a lateral um, radiograph after the shoeing to so they can see how they've changed the foot in relation to the center of rotation, et cetera. We charge the owners for that. We charge them $200 for that's the radiographs, the blocking, the shoeing, everything. We don't make anything that goes into a collective checking account. And we use that money to subsidize uh, clinics. We've had clinics, uh, the clinicians we've had have been Grant Moon and Craig Trinka and Steve O'Grady and Vern Dryden and uh, Shane Carter, Luke Prue. We just had a who's who of clinicians and are looking at having uh, Roy Bloom come and uh, also Scott Pleasant and Travis Byrne. So um, that's what we use that $200 for. A lot of times our owners even give us a little extra because they know that they're contributing to increasing the education of our, our whole farrier and veterinary community. And when we have the clinics with the clinicians, then that's when we have our barbecues and social time. The Monday nights, we just go over the horses, uh, radiograph, shoe, and then radiograph. So, and it, it varies. It's, this is held in my personal barn, so it doesn't, there's not room for 60. We, it varies. Some Monday nights, I'll only have, say, seven or eight farriers and me, and then some Monday nights, it'll be 19 or 20 farriers and five veterinarians. But, uh, you know, that's probably been our biggest crowd for Monday. Our clinics draw more like 30 or 40. Different approaches, but it it, it all seems to work. And I I like how you're able to bring in some really well-known farriers. And I think that's exceptional. We've been talking for a while, and I know we can talk a lot longer. But what I'd love to do is just go around and get any last words of just what you think vets can do to to foster relationships with farriers and, and to really show the teamwork that makes us together better. So, Andrea, what are your words of wisdom? This is a hard question, Mike. I think approaching it from the fact that we are all on the same team and we are all basically here working for the horses. You know, we work for clients, we work for practices, we work in competition with other practices. That's not the point. We're here for the horse. And so the best possible outcome for any horse is more likely to happen if the vet and the farrier can get on the same page. And if we approach it from that end, I really do think that we are all doing a better service to the horses. You know, times can be challenging and and cases can be challenging. And and sometimes I need to ask for help from another vet or a more senior vet. Or sometimes, you know, one of the young vets is, is the one that has the answer. But sometimes we need to reach out. We can't all know all of the answers all the time. And I think when the farriers are comfortable that you are working from that space, they get very comfortable in working from that space themselves, even the tough ones. And even 
the more challenging ones that I think you, you know, you spoke of someone similar earlier, Mike, that, that really, really didn't want to see a vet coming and does not want to collaborate. But if you put in some time and effort to hear their ideas and their thoughts, eventually they'll, they'll work with you most of the time. I think most of us are just working from a place of fear when we don't want to work with people. And I think a lot of us are are worried to work with a certain person because they're going to throw us under the bus. And I think if we let that go, we can have really productive and, and fun and rewarding relationships professionally with these people. That's great. How about yourself, Josh? What do you think about that? How do you, how do we make better relationships? Yeah, I think that's a, that's probably a, a great question. And obviously that's why we've got this topic today. But, you know, I, I agree with Andrea. Uh, we need to keep keep an open mind. I think probably one of the biggest things that I've found is that we all start at the same place. Some some of us, you know, need need more time and experience. And some of us, you know, are just getting our feet wet. And then some of us have been around and, and have almost got stuck in our ways. And and so those seems like some of the older ones that have been around for 30 years, 20 years, sometimes they, they you know, maybe don't have a the uh, tendency to be as open-minded where those young guys are always wanting to learn. And, and then the guys in the middle that are really going and, and blowing, they, they may be the ones that have a little bit more of a tendency to say, I've got this, I know what I'm doing type of mentality. And so as a veterinarian trying to relay information and, and come up with an idea, I think keeping those barriers in the decision-making process is important. Kind of pass along the the findings that you found on you know on your exam and, and diagnostic imaging, et cetera, and uh, say, well, this is how I think I I would try to the principles I'm trying to address and and you know various ways to to do that. What do you think, or what have you had success with talking to the farriers and and keep the clients in, involved too? There's not a whole lot worse than trying to have. A client talk to a client and then they go home and and try to relay that to a farrier. So we need to need to all three talk to each other and just keep an open line of communication. When the communication shuts down, then all of a sudden it's it's a lot easier for a farrier to point back at a vet, a client to point at the farrier, or the vet to point at somebody. So we need to just kind of you know realize that it is a team. It's a team sport. As a farrier, try to think of it as something that you can teach the farrier, but you can also learn from the farrier farrier as well. And it seems like that works the best in, in at least in my practice. The last but not least, BB, how do you uh, recommend that any veterinarians listening to this, that they, any tips they can use to help foster relationships with farriers in their area? Well, I completely agree with everything that Josh and Andrea just said. And I, I don't want to be redundant and say those things over uh, the communication and open-mindedness and mutual respect. And the only thing I can add is uh, what I said in the very beginning is um, it really helps to have a relationship with the farriers as much as you can before a problem starts. So we have breakfast together, we do social things together. And so when the client tells the farrier, BB said so-and-so, they know I didn't say that because they they know me. So I think it's really right. important to establish that relationship before there's a problem. That's great. You know, listening to you over the last, everybody over the last 50 minutes or so is 
the word that keeps coming back or the one I keep on thinking about as you're talking is the word humility, that you go in there very open arms, open-minded, and you're not putting yourselves above the farrier and that you're actually there to learn from the farrier. And I really think that if you genuinely go in there with that attitude, they're going to recognize it. And the word will get around too, that you're there to work with them as a team. So I'd like to thank all three of you. This has been an exceptional discussion. I've learned a lot. I hope people listening learn a lot. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.